Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Randy Evans, who is a nutritionist who works with Dr. Jeannie Drisco, Drisco, who I've interviewed previously. And he works uh, in helping people apply this program. So welcome, and thank you for joining us, Randy. Oh, thank you, Dr. Mercola. It is an honor to be here. Okay, so why don't you uh, give us some information about your background and how you got into this area, and then what you're doing with Dr. Drisco. Well, I, I have a kind of an, an odd nutrition background. I actually, you know, I always tell my patients, I, I grew up as a little boy in southern Iowa on a dairy farm at a time when agriculture was largely still organic. Um, there, we didn't have all the, the modern agriculture practices. And so so I actually grew up eating mostly real whole foods. So the, the interest in nutrition in my lifetime has just really been based on that foundation that, you know, we ate what we grew. And, and for hundreds of years, humans did that. Grocery stores were really small when I was a little kid, and now they cover acres, and the difference is, is man-made food. So I've always been interested in that theme of real whole foods, and, and then in, more interested along the lines of the healthy fat or the ketogenic diet after I came to work with Dr. Drisco here in the clinic because of its therapeutic uses. And, and now we've kind of expanded that. As, as our goal with most patients is to, is to kind of push, uh, push back on those low-fat guidelines we got in the 80s that kind of dug us a health hole and start to encourage people to incorporate healthy fats in every meal. And then in specific people, you know, for, for a number of reasons, it's beneficial to even push that to a higher level. So we believe in healthy fats for everyone. And, and then in, in certain people, uh, there's obviously benefits to using more and more healthy fat while limiting, you know, all that bad food, the man-made packaged processed food, the added sugars. Uh, we're really just getting carbs from mother nature here. Then, in some case, even limiting, you know, some of the starchy versions of those things. Sure. Now, so you grew up in Iowa, but right now you're at the University of Kansas, I believe, where yeah. Dr. Trisco has the, is the medical director of the integrative medicine program there. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, and you're working with her cl- at her clinic there yes. with her. And how many patients? Well, how long have you been doing this for? This is I'm I'm about five years with Jeannie. I actually this is a second career for me. I actually came back to school a few years ago just wanting to understand nutrition better, and and got a dietetics degree, and then came to University of Kansas, got a master's degree in nutrition. I was very fortunate to be one of the first students to rotate with Jeannie as a part of the nutrition program here. So and and even more fortunate that she decided to keep me after I graduated. So I I probably wouldn't have been happening in the world. Of, very happy in the world of conventional dietetics, so she kind of well, saved. That's, that's a guarantee, because <laughs> it, it is a big leap from the conventional dietetics training program to what you're doing now. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's a, a lot more. I mean, I, I just considered a lot more science-based and current research versus what I consider conventional dietetics. 
So why don't we walk through some helpful strategies that you've learned in your five years of helping people apply this program and uh, hopefully they can gain some insights from strategies that they can apply to themselves personally because one of the consistent themes that I see from people who have been seeking to implement this, not people but clinicians and their patients, is that the compliance with this is a, is a real significant challenge because it's so contrary to what the, the conventional eating plans are. So uh, I guess I'm not sure exactly where to start, but perhaps as a new patient coming to your clinic, what, what have you found to be particularly useful strategies to help orient them to the program and then strategies to help them effectively implement it? Well, I think you'll find it interesting that we, we, we almost kind of stumbled into this. Uh, for, for Initially, for years, Jeannie's just focused on that theme of real whole foods. And, and so again, we were just talking about carbs from Mother Nature and then emphasizing people get healthy fats you know in every meal and and what's interesting about that is when we started working on the ketogenic diet you know looking at the ratio the what most people call the ketogenic ratio you know carbs and protein compared to fat and and when we started looking at our conventional diet and then how to go toward ketogenic what we found was is we were pretty close if if we if we just had people eat moderate amounts of fruit and starchy carbs while emphasizing tons of non-starchy carbs and moderate or regular or I'd say adequate amount of protein we found that that put pretty close people pretty close to that one to one ratio where you're kind of borderline for ketogenic now that certainly depends on individual and, and what, which ratio are you referring to a ratio of just just tracking uh, using a, a diet program tracking your grams of carbs and protein compared to grams of fat it, in our in our what we've seen in our clinic is if you get that ratio about one to one you'll have most people kind of borderline or, or I'm, I'm still confused about the ratio, the ratio of Carbs to protein, or carbs and protein to fat, or what? What's carbs, carbs, adding adding the grams of carbs and protein together and comparing it to fat. Okay, because I'm not familiar with that ratio. And and that when you're doing that with the carbs, is that the net carbs? Are you excluding yeah. the fibers? Absolutely. Usually, it, once we, you know, to get people started, I think we generally will just go carbs. But you're right. When we look at those numbers, we're actually looking at net carbs plus protein, and yeah. and, and then balancing that with fat grams, healthy fats. And, and a lot of people in, in and around that one-to-one -one ratio, which is not that difficult, it's actually kind of how we move people toward ketogenic. We shoot for that ratio first, and then based on you know doctors, uh, the doctors asking patients to do more, we'll advance them to a ratio of maybe two-to-one or three-to-one or even four-to-one, and that's just more and more fat. Um, and that's when you actually start to restrict some of the starchy carbs and fruit more. Uh, but for most people, the moderate version gets them pretty close to trace ketones. That's interesting. Yeah, I I personally am doing about a three to one, three grams of fat for every half a gram and ha of each of net carbs and and protein. And that gets you a ketone level uh, one to two, or where does that get you? Uh, about one. Well, somewhere between one and two. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And your blood sugar will that be in the 60s, or will it be lower than that for that? Uh, it depends. You know, I'm I'm experimenting with it. I currently have a Dexcom. G5, so it's a 24-hour continuous glucose monitor. I'm not diabetic, but you know I'm obsessive compulsive and want to really fine-tune this as best possible. So, uh, if I restrict carbs to below 50, 40, 50 grams, I can pretty, I, I, you know, I typically will bounce below 50, 60 at night, sometimes even below 50, uh, and then come up to 80 or 90 in the daytime. But if I'm having more carbs, like healthy carbs, like fruits in the right. summer, then it goes up. 
Yeah, so. I might go as high as to 100, somewhere between 80 and 100, 110 sometimes. Sure. Well, and, and, and the value of that for us is we're certainly, we're certainly getting most people, I think the value of what we do, we're doing with the, the standard diet is we're just pushing people you know, away from a lot of simple sugars and toward mother nature for sugar. But along with that, then Jeannie will usually just have patients start to limit a little bit the starchy carbs and some of the fruit, but also at the same time add additional like MCT oil. So in other words, it's not a huge, it's not a huge leap for somebody to have a spoon of maybe an MCT or coconut oil along with meals. And a lot of times that's the nudge that puts them more toward ketogenic. Now a lot of people use a lot of oils or even MCT powders, which I know you're, you have one of those, uh, which I can't wait to see. But uh, mm -hmm. there's other things that you can do to, to, to modulate that. But we, we're finding that, that that switch into ketones is so individual for people. Some people really restrict carbs to get there. Other people, it's so easy for them. Um, and that's what I find interesting is that individual metabolism. Yeah, and you know, we don't. This is still an emerging science, and we don't know all the details. And it's there certainly is a strong possibility that measuring blood ketones isn't necessarily the most accurate way to understand the highlights of the metabolic improvements. Because if if a person is really efficient at not only generating them but metabolizing, them, then then right. that that the 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 lag time and the time that the ketones are in their blood is going to be relatively short, so they will, the levels will never get very high, but that doesn't mean they're not getting massive benefit. Right. Yeah, you're, I agree. I, that, I think there's so many unknowns in testing you know, even blood sugar, insulin, and ketones. I think a lot of unknowns there we probably know, we probably know less than we know. But yeah, and, 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 and certainly measuring you know, the beta-hydroxybutyrate, a lot of people think that's a storage form of the ketones. So yeah, if you're, if you're active and using a lot of energy and, and burning ketones, that's not going to be a good measure. Yeah, so it'll be a little lower than you would typically see, and some other maybe untrained individuals who are just initiating it might be able to get much higher levels, because they're not they're not, able, they're not actually able to burn them as fuel. But I I couldn't agree more with the MCT oils, and there's basically two types. Uh, most MCT oils are the, the the primary one you can purchase in the store as a combination of eight carbon chains and ten carbon chains, about fifty percent of each, right. and that's the inexpensive one. But they have a, there's a refined version or a uh, that works even better. It's just a C8. It's almost a, it's exclusively C8, and that converts to ketones much more effectively. Uh, so more expensive, but uh, really seems to be pretty pretty effective. And you know, of course, I'm sure you you counsel people, but anyone interested in implying this needs to be warned that the use of these has to be put your toe in the water because right. if you don't if you don't start with a teaspoon or less you will have explosive diarrhea which is not fun <laughs> so sure. yeah. yeah so I mean a person goes and use two or three tablespoons and they are they are just asking for trouble <laughs> and, and agree we we oftentimes and, and too to try to get people more toward the four to one ratio if it's in a you know, a progressive condition or if we're really watching blood sugar, whatever the issue is, is is the, the oil is also the tolerance issue. And I, I know the powders are, are much better tolerated. And, and, and our concern is, is we don't use a whole lot of dairy for ketogenic. Now, I know there certainly is healthy dairy, and, and we do use some of that, especially the fat from dairy. But we, have, we see a fair amount of patients who are inflamed enough that there's, you know, some sensitivity that, to casein. And, and we found there's not that many protein powder, I would say medium chain MCT powders out there that aren't casein related so so a clean uh, pro I think a clean version of those powders is kind of exciting for us and I know there's some research people interested in that as well 
Yeah, that, that's correct. Uh, the uh, I've not. I believe that we are using. You won't believe we're using for the carrier for the MCT oil. We're using ribose. I figured it was a short chain, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is a mitochondrial nutrient, so it's it's a it's a double whammy for the good. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, yeah, so as opposed to using some of those, but I couldn't agree more with it with with limiting the milk um, for a variety of reasons. You know, first of all, most of the dairy is not organic, but even if it was, and it raised on a pasture raised farm, and you just you know obtained it, and it's fresh and it's raw. Uh, there's still casein in there, and, and there's caseomorph receptors in the brain, which can be a challenge. But, but I don't think that's the biggest objection. From my perspective, it's loaded with galactose, which is a fairly significant carbohydrate. Right. And, and you drink a glass of milk, and you're trying to implement this program. You, you, you are basically a, sort of <laughs> used your whole net carbs for that day with that one glass of milk. <laughs> so I think that there's better ways. If I, you know, carbs are good, but you know, if I want to have carbs, I'm going to have to be really careful and select them and really enjoy them. Yeah, something to last. <laughs> yeah, and not potentially. Good. So I do have a lot of dairy though, but it, but it's in the form of about a pound of raw pasture pasture raised butter a week, which doesn't have much casein or virtually no carbohydrates. Yeah. Now and that's the theme of what we do as well. Uh, full fat dairy, if people are going to use it, is certainly the the organic grass fed, range fed, and then mostly it's butter, ghee. Uh, some hard cheeses that'll help with casein if you use hard cheeses. So yeah, there's ways, that, but it's moderation. Again, we're not having people consume, you know, tons of that stuff. It's it's just a it's in those fat servings for us. Yeah. So for myself personally, um, we had a celebration of our 19th anniversary that actually showed a day in the life of because that was the most requested video they wanted to see. So I had a film crew come down here and film me for a day and I in that process I shared with them what my meals were, which was essentially I call a, a fat bomb, which I derived from Dominic Diagostino and modified it to my own specs and then my personal salad. So that's one way and that's the, some recipes that people can use. But I'm wondering what how you uh, step a patient who's new to your clinic into this process? Are there any specific recommendations that you have with respect to maybe how to clean out their kitchen or how to, how to, how to prepare themselves to start the process of implementing it? Well, doc, Dr. Drisco's primary kind of baseline treatment for most patients just starts with uh, you know, basic nutrition and, and just trying to make sure that we're getting rid of a lot of the man-made package process stuff. So that's always step one. And then moving on to, you know, whatever other problems a patient might have or what other symptoms she's going to address. But the food sensitivity is not unusual to be a second step if somebody's got a lot of chronic inflammation or they, they report, look, I've always been sensitive to this food or when I eat this, it bothers me. So I'd say a lot of our dietary recommendations, including those for the ketogenic diet, are really just based on that individual report, you know, the, the 35 pages that we gathered from them based on, you know, family history, mom and dad's history, and just trying to kind of sort through any issues. If there's sensitivities, then maybe there'll be some testing for that. But the goal is to kind of use that to guide us and 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 then to, to just emphasize the theme of real whole foods and, and healthy fats. And I think that in my mind, it's always easy to explain that to people. We have essential proteins and we have essential fats. You know, the carbs, we don't have any essential. They certainly can help us. So our goal is to always make sure we're emphasizing the two essentials, and and then when we go ketogenic, we're just making a slight shift in that in what that image of their plate looks like. And it's easy enough to ask people to eat half portions, you know, to kind of ease into this, to eat half portions of maybe beans or or sweet potato or or the starchy veggies, 
not many grains. I mean, grains are just too energy dense, we, and we see so much sensitivity to that. So I'd say more along the lines of the starchy veggies, maybe cut back to half portion of fruit, but at the same time, we always add a little bit of that oil in there. And, and so getting people there actually is not too hard to get them to that borderline. It's, it, you're right, though. It is a challenge for people to do it long term. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. My first book was The No Grain Diet, which is not a, head, a title that I created. It was my publisher, and I was really quite angry for many years after that. It was in 2004, I believe. And then, because I felt that, you know, then some people, it really wasn't an absolute like that. But right. for the last few years, I'm so happy because I think that is a, that is probably appropriate for almost everyone. I mean, it's, there's no absolutes, of course, and some right. people can do fine with grains. But most people should not have them. And I personally am on a no-grain diet. I just don't have any grains. I haven't had any grains for – I've been on this program for about a year now, or coming up on a year. And it's really transformed my life. Jeannie, Jeannie does most of the time limit grains a lot. And certainly if somebody says, I'm not going to do that, we're always emphasizing, you know, the non-GMO, the ancient grains, trying to get as real a grain product as you can. But it's just simply, simply a volume issue in my mind. If somebody, you know, the average American, the average patient we see looking to lose a little bit of weight, we're knocking those out for a while. I mean, we're taking away that energy-dense food for a while, especially if we're kind of suspect of anything it might have in it. And so there's a number of reasons to kind of watch out for that, but I would agree most people are going to do better, you know, with less. And there is a way that I'd like to discuss with a few people who've had, who are in the trenches like yourself and uh, that can actually rapidly accelerate the transition into ketosis. Nutritional ketosis, because there is a massive difference between nutritional ketosis and diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, one of the, it has to do with the levels of glucose and ketones in your blood, but also, you know, because your glucose and ketoacidosis is really high as yeah. your ketosis, but when nutritional ketosis, your glucose and insulin are really low. Yeah. Um, so the the question is, have you ever found it useful in someone who has a high BMI? And I'm not really fond of that as a Right. nutritional characteristic, but it, but it basically defines a certain type of patient, you know, basically heavy, heavy overweight obese individuals. Do you ever find it useful to in, implement a water fast intervention of 3, 7, 10, 21 days? Because I, I've become recently intrigued with this, primarily from the information and experience of Ray Cronice, who's been interviewed by Dr. Rhonda Patrick. He's an in, intriguing individual. I'm going to try to get him on to interview him at some point. But uh, he's done a lot of work with this long-term fast, and I was really opposed to it before. But, uh, but, and I think for people who are underweight or certainly with cancer cachexia, it would be a disaster. I mean, right. they, they, it would potentially kill them. Right. But for someone who has this massive reservoir of fat and is metabolically deranged, I think it seems to be a fairly effective intervention. I haven't actually implemented it with anyone yet, right. but, but I'm... I'm toying with it and having a few people consider it. So I'm wondering what your experience is with that. Well, it, absolutely. I think there's great value there. I, I always think about those natural stimuluses that can help with longevity genes. And, and Rhonda, Dr. Patrick, talks about that a lot. You know, the ketogenic diet, specific nutrients like quercetin or resveratrol or fasting or, I mean, there's a number of things that set that off, you know, sauna. So, so that mm -hmm. thinking about that, yeah, fasting is important. And I, what we ask most of our patients to do in general, we ask them to have those, a tight eating window. In other mm -hmm. words, we start there and, and then we do have patients will progress to fasting, but at least we're starting them and saying, look, you know, let's go with a couple meals a day or three meals a day, but squeeze those down to 12 hours or 10 hours and get that long off time. So you've got kind of a small fast there. And then we do have patients who use like the 5-2 plan or 
you know, the fasting mimicking is the newest one I've been looking into, which has some application for cancer therapy. I, I find that was interesting. I wouldn't say we've had a lot of people do it. I've had two patients do strict fasts on their own, uh, mm -hmm. and they were cancer patients, and they just decided to do it. But were they I, over? Were they overweight? They no one one had weight to lose, but the other not. And so we actually were kind of thinking it wasn't a good idea. They they actually did it on their own away from us. And 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 the one guy I know fasted for five days and and seemed to do well with it. But I think because we see such a chronically sick group, mm -hmm. we're a little hesitant to go for that mm -hmm. long fast. So we I'd say we focus more on the eating windows. I do have two patients doing the the five two where you do that, you know, that minimal calorie fast every third day or twice a week. And, sure. and they seem to do well with that, and, and it, it seems to be probably more realistic in, in a lot of ways, but not so much experience with the real fast. I don't, I don't have that kind of experience. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I've come to the conclusion over the last few years that virtually everyone's going to be benefiting from some type of intermittent fast where you have a restricted eating window. Right. I, I think typically, you know, I've, I've come to the conclusion after using my glucose monitor that the ideal time to eat, at least for someone like myself, is when your glucose usually goes really low at night and then it starts to come up to rise when your cortisol level increases and then it starts to rapidly rise. I mean, it'll go up 10, 20 points. And I think that's because of gluconeogenesis and I'm not sure that that's a particularly helpful right. process. Uh, so to abort that, I think that's the time to eat. So in my experience, it's typically about 16 hours or so, 14 okay. to 16. Yeah. No, so it's an in, individual, and I think almost everyone benefits from that. Maybe if you're a competitive athlete, a weightlifter, bodybuilder, or you know some some niched specific intervention that you see or or benefit your or goal you're seeking to achieve, then that may not be appropriate. For almost everyone else, it is. But I really believe, and I, you, maybe I'll talk to Dr. Driscoll about this. But it's something you know for a specific intervention, if you're, especially like a type two diabetic, the classic type two diabetic, which literally is like one-third of the population of the United States <laughs> and you know and not certainly some of them are seriously but most are not they're just struggling along taking their oral hypoglycemics and trying to follow the high carbohydrate diet that the nutritionist is recommending well right. these are the individuals that I think they have 20 30 50 100 pounds to lose right. that would benefit magnificently from not eating for one two three weeks and jump starting because then within a week they'll be they'll be in great ketosis they'll be shifted almost every one of their metabolic pathways beneficially and really jumpstarts their ability to burn fat because normally it takes two, three, four, six weeks. I mean, what's your experience in a person who comes in new to the program to the point where they're actually able to generate ketones on the program? Well, it, it, you're right. It does take some time. And I, and I think in that in that metabolically challenged group, it's it's smart to, to have that kind of, for most people, it'd be easing into that because you not only are dealing with a blood sugar and insulin issue, you're dealing with you know sometimes three pages of medications that alter metabolism in in multiple ways and work against each other. So a lot of times those are almost detox steps for us. It, it, we almost look at patients in that first couple months as as kind of cleaning them up, and then Jeannie actually calls it that. Is we got to clean these people up. First thing is get all the junk out of their food. You know, the second thing is to work on maybe that meal timing and what they're eating, and then the third thing is to move on to maybe doing some of these more advanced things. But there's certainly, in a lot of cases, can't take some of these people who have multiple chronic health problems and all these medications and and kind of throw them into that ketogenic. I think would be, while it might do them some good uh, from from a standpoint, a medical standpoint, Gina says maybe we'd be better off doing this slowly. Uh, yeah. Most of the time we do. I'd say I'd say the average person takes probably closer to two months to see mm. maybe stones. 
Um, they might get trace ketones right away, but probably I'd say about two to three months is on average what it takes. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that uh, for the typical type 2 diabetic who's on this uh, essentially shopping bag full of medications, right. uh, it, we, that is, although that I believe that there's strong likelihood, assuming they weren't seriously, had some serious other illnesses, uh, that they need to, that was their primary issue that they need to do this under a supervised situation so that someone can manage their drugs because essentially what if there are two or three high, high blood pressure medications right. and uh, their blood pressure normalizes well they're gonna go hypotensive and potentially have a stroke yeah. so that's something that has to be done under carefully supervised circumstances there's no question if you're on medications because that's Absolutely. what but almost anyone I bet the vast majority of people who implemented a two to three week fast could be off of almost all their medications Oh, I agree. I think it would be remarkable. It, you know, that it's interesting to think about a place to do that. You know, a new new, new model for healthcare to do that in. It, we're still dealing mostly. In, we're inside the medical center, but we're really dealing outpatient with people. You know, mm -hmm. certainly if you had the ability to monitor them and check on them anytime you wanted, or get a blood lab anytime, absolutely. You could you could you could take a lot more metabolic risk there um, if you were able to you know have them in house. So that's the challenge sometimes is is kind of doing this on the fly when people are, you know, are just reporting and, and some people better than others at compliance and reporting and so that's the, where, where I think Jeannie's kind of defaulted on that slow and steady just because Yeah, it's a lot safer, yeah. certainly a lot safer, there's no question and, and the last thing we need are complications even though occasionally rare that results in harm and unnecessary yeah. litigation and all those those challenges so but there are uh, one of my mentors and personal physician uh, Dr. Lee Cowden is actually in the process of developing these arrangements uh, with hotel chains to have these like healing centers where people come and stay for a few days a week, two weeks a month, mm -hmm. so that they can have this close daily regulation because it's it's it kind of changed their whole life and that just doesn't happen in a few outpatient visits. I mean it can, but it's a lot longer and, and more complex. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Changing the environment would be the key, and and certainly to have the ability to do multiple things at once and different kinds of treatment in-house would be a, a huge part of it. Uh, but yeah, just to have that ability to constantly monitor people. Uh, but I think, you know, changing up uh, these days, you know, our, we, we don't deal so much with the natural stresses, but we deal a lot with man-made stresses. And I think that's a big part of our problem. We've got to find a way to pull people out of that. I, I always think about the mountaintop somewhere. We've got, we've got to get rid of, you know, the technology and, and the constant contact. and kind of let people center again and, and that's the best thing about that new healthcare model is it looks like we're going to account for that. We've got to get these people you know, away from themselves in some cases and give them a break and let them become normal again. Now there's a physician, I don't know if you've heard of him, his name is Jack Kraus. He's a neurosurgeon and I think he's in New Orleans now. But uh, his he's aligned with these types of processes and has dug really deep into the um, metabolic physiology and biochemistry and molecular biology of, of the pathways and doesn't really focus as much on the diet of course he agrees with most of this stuff but he, his focus is on exposure to natural light like uh, an infrared and ultraviolet and getting people stopping wearing glasses and getting people outside and filtering out the blue lights so and, and it's his contention that you have know, the healthiest diet but if you don't have this light exposure optimized you're going to be seriously challenged and I'm wondering if that's something you integrate into your program or have observed or if you, if you address that at all? Absolutely. Uh, Gene and I both have full spectrum lights sitting on our desk uh, so 
So we do believe in it, and, and I think for, for a lot of people, you're right. It, well, it goes along with the vitamin D story. Vitamin D is low in most everyone we check, and, and it's because of and here we are sitting inside. So I, I think it makes sense, but along with that goes that, you know, that evolutionary exposure to bright light and being outside all the time. We're missing both of those things. And so we do, especially in people who are struggling with you know, stress hormones, uh, trying to get balance back in their life, we do recommend people use, you know, therapeutic lighting. Um, and it's not that we, we don't have anything in house yet. I know Jeannie's considering those options, but we're just talking about, you know, the, the full spectrum light that'll give you exposure to that sun-like light, um, even if you're not going outside, just to kind of reset. And I, I think they say before nine o'clock in the morning to get, you know, 20 minutes of that. But uh, yeah, I think there's great value in that. Well, I think it might be even better. Uh, Dr. Krauss refers to those as fake suns, essentially, even even full spectrum lights, because it does give you all the wavelengths. You're not right. getting the UV, and and really, what you need is the natural sun exposure, and particularly useful in the morning. Uh, a new strategy I've started doing is trying to get out as the sun is just over the horizon and look staring straight into it to get those those in, those rays into my retina, and then doing some exercises. Now, a lot of times my schedule is I just sometimes I miss that window. I missed it this morning, but I do the most most days I can. Yeah. And and then doing the same thing at night, looking into the evening sun as the, as the sun sets. And then at that point, making sure that you're wearing, if you're going to not go, if you're not going to bed at that time, as most people won't, because even in the summer, I mean, the sun's setting at about 8.30 or 9, and very few people go to bed that early, uh, then you'd wear some filters, like okay. some, you know, the, the, so the way that you can modulate the input of blue, blue wavelengths into your, into your system that will certainly upset your circadian rhythm because of other potential molecular biological aberrations. Sure. Yeah, and probably some unknowns there as well. We we do have people using the, you know, the computer, the the, the blue blockers on their computer. Sure. We also have it cell phones a lot of times have them now. But yeah, anytime it's so funny that you see sleeping disorders in this group and you always say, Well what do you do if you don't sleep? Well they're on the computer. So or they're watching T V and you know that that does feed kind of a snowball in the wrong direction hormone-wise, I mean, we know that's important. The question is how to best reset that. And so it's just one of the multiple things, the little things we can do. Yeah, closer to nature would be better. It'd be awesome. We would just, we would just get more natural sunlight. Yeah, and uh, I'm familiar with those blue blue light filters like Flux, which yeah. I'm actually using on my computer right now because it makes my skin tone looks better on these videos. <laughs> but but I but I don't use them personally at night because I find that's far more effective. And I mean, literally, you can get these fil these uh, blue light filtering filtering glasses, essentially yellow glasses on Amazon for under ten dollars, and they've got these side panels on the back, so essentially no light gets in. It isn't filtered, and not only will you screen the light from your TV or your phone or iPad or tablet, but you'll also filter from any other source of light that you may happen to be around. That that, that you know, so it it covers everything, and it's easy. You can't forget, right. and you don't get this accidental exposure that you hadn't anticipated. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a simple strategy. I just, you know, most of us just don't get it. And if you had some type of analytical tool that could really carefully give you feedback as to the quality of your sleep, because it's not just how many hours you're in bed. It's the, the amount of REM sleep and light sleep and the amount of uh, disturbances you have at night. Uh, and, you know, there's all, uh, and deep sleep. These are all important variables that really contribute to the overall re recuperation capacity of your sleep. Yeah. yeah. Now, I actually use uh, glasses of that type uh, driving uh, years ago just because it f I felt better when I drove with those. Really? Interesting. Time. 
you know, the glare of the light. And now that all the cars use that super bright white light um, that's really bright, those things are very helpful. So Oh, to, sure. At night, yes, absolutely. It just takes away that glare and then eye stress. I had, you know, I just, I don't drive much. I might drive <laughs> a thousand miles a year or maybe 1,500. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, I hardly ever drive at night. So, I, I, But it, it makes a lot of sense because my full appreciation of the importance of filtering blue light isn't, isn't until recent. Certainly before I was long since I stopped driving at night. Right. So that would be a useful strategy. I'd never thought of that, but that's a good, good tip. Yeah, because the lights just keep getting brighter. So, yeah, yeah. not good. So are there any other great tips you have for people who want to start this program? I, th I can think of one, maybe of similar examples, <clears throat> where some people recommend that they just go through their food cupboards and closets and just eliminate things, or, or two, to elicit the support of family members, or maybe even have their family members go on. So I'm wondering what type of strategies you found useful to increase the compliance, because that seems to be a notoriously major challenge for most individuals who are seeking to, to adopt this, because unless... You're, I mean, if you're dying from cancer, you're pretty motivated, but that's certainly not everyone's situation. Well, it's it's interesting. That you're right. It, it, it's really figuring out what motivates somebody or what their reason to do it is. It's interesting that so, there's a lot of social media now using higher-fat diets, and I think that support's important. It's, it's not something we can really offer here. We do have patients you know, who like to form support groups. I think those would be great, but it's always good just to know you're not in it for yourself or by yourself, it, it, certainly more people in a family that eat this way, they can support each other. But it, it is a challenge. I would say that we, we really are just motivating people by what their goals are. So if somebody's goals are weight loss or more energy or better sleep or so really just trying to plug, you know, lifestyle, environmental or dietary, you know, whatever, whatever we think will kind of dial that in the best. So it's very individualized, but it's finding out what motivates them. And usually there's something other, whether it's whether it's not having to, well, just feeling better, but if it's somebody's, you know, interest is, is it's not having to worry about food all the time, gosh, the high-fat diet is one of the best ways to not have to carry food around with you. I, as a dietitian, I'm trained to tell people to eat all the time, and, mm -hmm. and for years I did that myself. You know, I carried food everywhere I went, and it's so liberating not have to worry about food all the time. If you get good, healthy fat in your diet, you can go a long time without eating, and and I think one of the big motive, biggest motivations we have is encouraging people to become fat burners. You know, to get off the carb wagon and become fat burners, they, they have more energy. They're able to switch between fuel sources. They tend to become less inflamed, lose a little weight, along with all the other myriad of symptoms that can be improved, like GI health or sleeping better or just having more energy. So it's really just looking at symptoms and saying, here's, here's what we think this will do. And, and our, honestly, the goal is just to push them far enough that they notice something then they have the option to stick with it or not. But the, the motivational part of it as for us is we want to we want to get these people pushing toward three months of a dietary change and then say, hey, if you don't like it, you can go back to the way you used to. And most people feel enough different they don't go completely back. They might fall off the wagon, but they generally will will say, well, I don't want to feel like that and get back on it. So it's they probably run a cycle at that point. But yeah, the motivations can be varied. And I, I would say it's just a matter of figuring out why somebody would be interested. I do it just because it's healthy. I struggle to maintain weight, and I find a high-fat diet is really helpful for that. And, and, and it well, really That's a good point. I want to come back to that, but I want to also address the liberating aspect that you had mentioned, which I think even better than not having to worry about food is the fact that you're not controlled by yeah. hunger pains or cravings, which to me is the most dramatic side effect or benefit of this approach. I mean, the food cravings absolutely 
genuinely, truly disappear. They're right. gone. You do, yeah. I mean, it's just almost magical. I wonder if you can comment on your observations of the people who've incorporated and maybe some of the feedback they provided you, because it's just it's just good to hear from other people. No, people are so excited because when we when the initial come as initially come as a patient, we we talk about you know doing you know just the three meals a day, stop the snacks, just try to focus on meals, and and then as we go more toward the healthy fats, some people will report, well, look, you know, it used to be if I wasn't eating, I'd feel like I was starving to death. And, and they might say, well, I, you know, I missed lunch yesterday because it worked, but I didn't even notice it. And, and so that's the goal is a lot of people ride that food roller coaster. You know, they get the sugar high, they get the crash, the sugar high, the crash. And that's what most people are on. If we get them off of that, that can do dramatic things for health, but certainly just makes them feel better. And it's so, it's so, it's like a light bulb comes on that, hey, maybe I don't have to eat what's around me. Maybe, maybe I don't have to eat what everybody else has eaten. And you're right. It's so liberating. There's a, there's a lot of freedom in that. It's just not having to worry about it, and, and to be able to be comfortable because you're burning stored energy sometimes is a good thing. You know, it's so funny that we tried to tell Americans they could lose weight by eating every hour and a half. We're gonna we're gonna tell people, okay, you can eat calories and supply fuel via the diet every hour, and you want and you're trying to lose weight. It always seems silly to me to think we could do that by never stopping eating. Um, so so now we're on the other side of that, saying, look, let's get some breaks in the meals, and and it's magical what it'll do for people. They they generally just feel better. Yeah, and the other component too, the increased intellectual capacity and mental clarity that comes from this so that they can actually, their brain works better because it's operating in a far more efficient fuel. Absolutely. We One of the first patients, actually it's our longtime patient that Jeannie and I had, that started on a ketogenic diet, I think close to three years now, uh, doing a great job with it, but he was a, he was a, a college professor and he reported uh, one of the first things he reported, and we hadn't expected it, was cognition like he hadn't had in years. Uh, improved ability to think clearly and to do things. We had never, we hadn't expected that. We were, we were looking at labs and you know ketone levels and cancer markers, and he goes, "Gosh, you know, I've never thought more clearly." And so now we ask people, and that's very common. Yeah, it's yeah. very. Yeah, it's it's if you don't have it, I'm almost suspicious that you're doing something wrong. Right. <laughs> is that consi is that consistent? So I'm I'm also curious. I want to follow up on your comment about struggling to keep your weight, which is obviously a, not an issue for most people, but but maybe for many people following this program. And I can tell you for myself, I was what at I thought was my ideal body weight, about 180, and I went on this program and went down to 164 pounds. <laughs> and I was not trying to lose weight at right. all. Right. And that's because I was having only 2,500 or 3,000 calories. I thought that was sufficient. But what I found is that I can't, I mean, I cannot, I'll start losing weight if I go below 3,500 calories more in a few days. And sometimes I go up to 4,000. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that because, you know, what are your experiences on that? Well, they, it's, it's so counterintuitive for dietitians and, and, and people who do the ketogenic diet to think, because we've been so ingrained that fat's bad for us and that it's going to make us fat and that it's got a lot of calories. And we find almost universally that people move toward the high-fat diet, have a, they, they lose weight without trying, and, and a lot of times we'll struggle to maintain weight. In other words, we'll have to tell people on ketogenic diets to eat more and more. And that's just that just goes back to, to it shows you the truth that we it's not as simple as calories in and calories out. We know that didn't work. It never has worked. And the ketogenic diet or a high-fat diet is one of the best ways to experience that for yourself because you will find you're eating probably more calories than you ever ate and you're a lot happier 
and you may still lose weight. It, it is. I think it creates leanness. That ability to switch between fuel sources is a very easy way to make somebody lean. And honestly, it's probably for from an evolutionary standpoint, that's the way our bodies are programmed. We we weren't programmed for constant food and the same kind of food and the you know all this man-made stuff. We weren't really just programmed for it. So in a lot of ways, I think we're just pushing metabolism in a natural way that we're programmed for. Yeah, and I know you've studied a lot of the molecular biology behind this, and I think it's pretty fascinating. It's one of the reasons that I've been so passionate about this is that uh, when you break down fuel, there's only essentially two fuels, sugar and fat. And the, one of the reasons why you want to burn fat is because it's a clean fuel. I thought found it a simple, easy way to explain to people where it burns, burns without much pollution, pollution being reactive oxygen species and secondary free radicals. And then the sugar burns far more dirty. It's a dirty fuel. It's contaminated. Well, not contaminated, although it could be. Yeah. It's glyphosate. <laughs> but, uh, but typically contaminated with excessive reactive oxygen species, which... which and if you have them in excess, you're going to cause inflammation and right. premature degeneration. So, you know, maybe you can comment on some of the molecular biology that you've reviewed and, and how it syncs up with the program. Well, I would agree with that. It, it, to me, it's very simple. We're a human being is made of fat. Our brain's mostly fat. Our hormones are fat. I mean, we're really fat machines in a lot of ways. Um, so it, it kind of makes sense that that would work well for us. And and I, I, I would agree. We I usually tell patients, look, it's very anti-inflammatory to fuel a human with healthy fat. And I think that's true. It, it's more true because a lot of our carbs come with a little bit, you know, there could be things in there that aren't so good for us. So if we if we default to Mother Nature's carbs, then certainly those are healthy or as, maybe as good as we can get. But I, I do think that we're we, a lot of, it certainly could be individual and, and there can be some genetics involved, but I think there, a, a good number of, of, of Americans could do better just by increasing healthy fat to get away from other things. But I, it, it totally makes sense to me that, that we're, we kind of are programmed for that kind of uh, fuel. Um, and to have a variety of, in, in you know, the diet and throw the fasting in there and interval training, there's a lot of, of those things that actually push those longevity genes that we hear so much about now with research. It's, it's amazing how many of those natural stresses actually push our body in a good way. So I think we would be highly negligent and ir irresponsible uh, if we didn't go into specific details of what a healthy fat is. You and I understand that. that we can meet, we, it's, it, that's the beauty of medical jargon is you can communicate two words and you, you basically it's, it's like a book. But many people are clueless about healthy fat. And I think it's, even though we say it's a high-fat diet, it, it is, but it's high-quality fat. In a high-fat diet, gener generically, the typical fats that most people are eating will actually prematurely accelerate their progress towards death. No doubt in my mind, I think that's right. one of the reasons why we have this acceleration in epidemic heart disease in the first half of the 20th century, because they were eating all these oils and fats right. that were not natural. So why don't you expand on that and give, you, give an example of what you would tell a patient just coming into your clinic and how you educate them on the what is a healthy fat. Absolutely. It is the biggest challenge we have is to convince people there are healthy fats. Uh, so we're, we're actually just trying to push people away from the more commercial products. Uh, you know, the commercial oils, the corn, the soy, the canola, the, not necessarily all the, all the oils that are bad, you know, peanuts, safflower, sunflower. I'm not saying that group of oils is bad, but a lot of times they're heat and chemical process, so they can be damaged oils. So we, we certainly are saying to people, well, you'll probably get some of that stuff if you eat out or if you eat some out of the package. But don't use it at home. At home, we want people using the extra virgin olive oil, coconut oil, 
you know, pasture butter or ghee. Uh, it, along the lines of healthy fats, though, you know, you can throw healthy eggs in there, healthy meats, you know, the range-fed, grass-fed meats, um, uh, other oils that we would encourage would be like avocado or grapeseed oil. So, so along the lines of healthy fats, we're just saying, you know, in every meal, even, even with our not ketogenic patients, the, the patients we're just trying to get a, a good base of nutrition, we're saying get two servings of healthy fat most of the time in every meal. And, and the, so that's as simple as getting, you know, half an avocado, uh, a tablespoon of some kind of oil, a handful, a small handful of nuts, like a quarter of a cup. Um, it, it's pretty simple to get those servings in there. Two eggs is a serving. Uh, deck of card size chunk of meat is a serving of healthy fat. So it's really just giving them ideas and, and it shows them how easy it is to get a couple of servings of fat into each meal or, or in a smoothie if they're using smoothies. Um, it actually becomes pretty obvious to them that it's pretty easy to get those things either with cooking with oils or you know adding olive oil to steamed veggies, ghee to you know a, a sweet potato, whatever it is. It's just small amounts and, and in that way it's, it's not as crazy as it may. High fat diet sounds kind of weird to people. I think when they see the amounts of servings we're talking about it actually becomes I mean, it, it it's becomes pretty easy for them to see how they might be able to do that. Yeah, <clears throat> and I personally don't like the use of refined oils and avoid them whenever possible. Sure. Uh, so rather than avocado oil, I would encourage people to have avocados. I, I personally use two avocados a day, and I do think that you many times omega-6 are given a bad rap, and I think that's appropriate because the vast majority that we receive is through refined industrialized processed oils. But if you can get them from seeds, and my favorites, this is a little trick I use, is black cumin, black sesame seeds, and I soak them overnight along with some flax seed and pumpkin seed, and then I grind them up on my smoothie. So the omega-6 and the, the, the sesame and the cumin and the pumpkin is, you know, it's, it's a healthy dose, and it's, it's, it's totally not rancid. It's fresh as can be, and right. it's, it's all its native form. And then I actually put some phospholipids in there, and when I use the immersion blender, it kind of binds them up and even further improves the absorption of them fat, those fats. No, I'd agree. The, the goal, with, you know, the optimal way to get these fats would be through the foods for sure. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, absolutely. And then, and then less processed oils. Uh, I'd say most commonly we're using yeah, the the fat from dairy, the butter, uh, but often I'll you know a lot of you know coconut oil or olive oil is probably the big ones. Great. So, um, are there any other strategies that you use with the, the patients that you found helpful for compliance? I don't know that. Again, we're probably looking at individual motivation. I I think one of the newest motivations for me is is uh, a lot of our patients are in, you know, that middle age group and wanting to do more or have more energy. And I, I find the research, the newer research related to uh, high fat diets, well, it's not new if you know Dr. Bullock or Dr. Finney, but it, it, being able to burn fat at pretty high levels performance wise, as long as you're adapted to that kind of, of, of diet or, or lifestyle. And I find that interesting. I, I think a lot of people think that there's some kind of bad connotations with healthy fats. and. And I, I always uh, uh, encourage people to give this a try just because I think it will give them more energy and, and to know that they might be able to do more. And, and again, our fat fuel tank is a lot bigger than our carb fuel tank, and we don't suffer the highs and lows that we do with uh, carb energy. So I think for a lot of people, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a natural place to be. So motivationally, you can say, look, there's, this actually might be provide more energy. You might feel better. Uh, you might be able to do more things. Uh, Again, it's very just anti-inflammatory in my mind, a good way to fuel the body. So in other words, we're just describing those benefits to people and, and trying to nudge them in the right direction. 
Great. So I've, I've personally found nutrient trackers to be a useful tool, mm -hmm. and especially for those who aren't working with a nutritionist. So uh, there's a number of them out there, and uh, the one that we've settled on is uh, Chronometer. That's C-R-O-N-O-M-E-T-E-R.com slash Mercola. So we've actually worked with them to refine it for a nutritional ketosis program. So uh, it's a great tool. It allows people to see what they're reading because a lot of times there's – Really, it's it's very seriously confusing, right. and uh, you have to. There's a there's the, the programs aren't necessarily the easiest in the world to work with because they require a little effort. You have to weigh your food. I mean, you just can't guess, right. you know. And uh, you have to be careful and input your things. But once you do, it just takes a few minutes a day, and it's so much valuable information that you get. Yeah, they're they're much easier to use than they used to, and, and we're actually going to use that program as well. We've we've used other programs, and as you know, a lot of those are user generated data, and, mm -hmm. and so so are really ballpark at best. And 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 our our goal is to get all of our patients switched over. So chronometer looks great, and then and certainly much more accurate, and that's yeah. important um, in diet. Yeah, they, yeah, that that is a big that is is probably biggest distinguishing factor is they do not allow. Um, crowdsourced user input of data. You can use your own if you want to put yourself at risk and you know that you're here obviously you have to be really careful about entering the accurate data. But but just because someone else entered the wrong data, you're not penalized for it because they yeah. they all their data is vetted by the the two top databases, nutritional databases in the world. So it's 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 solid. Absolutely. Yeah and then and that's how we guide people toward that that ketogenic or, or higher fat is is using those numbers. So you're right, it's very important to have that. And again, it can be motivational for people when they're looking at their, their day's meals. If you look at your lunch, dinner, and breakfast, you can actually think, if you, if you consider that ratio we talked about comparing your grams of protein and net carbs to fat, that's a ratio that, that balances for most people when they about one-to-one -one when they start to get toward ketones. And actually, it was Dominic that uh, turned us on to that line of thought about using the ratio. So it's actually kind of a simple way to think about food, but they can then look at those diet programs and say, you know, well, here's how I can fix the breakfast, or, you know, here's what I have for lunch. And you can you can look at the ratio for each meal if you want. And it actually kind of helps you just, you know, if, if you're, in my mind, if you just think about it, if you're having a fair amount of, you know, carbs, or non-starchy carbs even, if you add the oil to something, you kind of help balance that ratio. So as long as you're talking about good food, you're really just looking at some numbers there in a way to kind of balance the meals or the day's intake. And in that way, it can be pretty simple for people to think about. Yeah, and the, two, the other component is that I create, place great value on restricting protein to, to a certain right. level. I like to keep mine under 70 grams a day. and. I enter my, I seek to most of the time, unless it's just a highly repetitive day, and I know exactly what I'm going to eat, I've done it before, but if it's an unusual day, I'll enter my foods that I'm going to plan on eating first, Right. because then I'll know I'll need to bump something up, or I'm, whoa, I'm so shockingly <laughs> way over, i got to cut back, can't, can't eat that, but if, you, if you've entered it after you've eaten, it's too late. Right, that's true, <laughs> yeah, it's too late to adjust. Now that's a great idea, I never thought of that. That's a great idea. Yeah, so I, I, that's, I think it's just a very valuable tool from that perspective, so you, 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 know, you have that flexibility. Um, so do you, pay, do you pay a lot of attention to limiting the protein? Because the typical person is going to eat a lot more than 70 grams of protein a day. I mean, even that, pack, that deck of card size of protein, I think, might be a little bit too much for most people. It might be half a deck of cards, like yeah, two it's, ounces, closer to two ounces rather than four. You're right. It, it is certainly trying to push people in the right direction and, and generally true that most people are getting more than enough protein. And I think I think the goal for us, at least short term, is 
is to get more accurate. We're, right now we're using a algorithm-based VIA to do body composition. Our goal is to get an actual measuring machine and, and base then that protein off a of lean body mass. I think that's a, a general way to get close on protein. But you, you know, I've, I've heard and I, I agree that probably the best way to think about protein intake would be the amount of protein it takes to prevent lean body mass loss. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think maybe using that lean body mass figure is a good place to start. But again, to have that, you really need an accurate an analyzer, a way to, to, to make that decision. But I agree, yeah, protein is, our goal is to get adequate protein. Yeah, and I really think for most people it's it's a lot lower than they think. And, right. you know, the Dr. Ron Rosell, one of my mentors in this area and really one of the key leaders in developing this thought process is firmly believes that excess protein is far more damaging than excess carbs. And primarily because of the incredible role it plays in inhibiting mTOR. And mTOR inhibition is, is one of the key signaling pathways in the body for improving health and longevity. Now, if, if you, you don't always want to inhibit it. I mean, that's this whole thing, too. Maybe you can just address before we sign off is this cycling. Do you ever find it's helpful to cycle people through different phases? So they'll be on this restricted net carbs program for a while, and then you, then you put them up on carbs. Because I've noticed when I was restricted myself, personally, for a long time, my glucose levels just started to rise. Right. So then when I, I, which was probably because of depleted glycogen stores. So then when I started having some fruits, then my glucose levels dropped, which is it's counterintuitive. <laughs> it is. It, it, it is frustrating sometimes, as you've done, to follow those numbers because if, if, if you look at enough biochemistry, you think, well, this is what's going to happen. And most of the time, something else happens. And I, I think that is that is that constant adaptation of our bodies to the environment and the stresses that surround us. So I think it'll always be like trying to ride on a bouncing ball. It's going to be so individual in people and it's actually going to vary based on your stress level or your activities for the day or I mean any number of things that or how well you slept. So so many things impact those meta metabolic numbers and it's fascinating to me to follow that you know the mTOR some of the energy path the the energy genetic energy pathways modified by the diet but I think you're going to see swings that are so individual in people depending on all those environmental factors and then just individual metabolism variants and, and all the SNPs that you can have and polymorphisms there. So it, it's fascinating to me to try to predict that uh, because it seems so unpredictable. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, I think this is a great pieces of information that we provided individuals and uh, we are both planning on attending the uh, event in September in Orlando with uh, the Conquering Cancer Conference with right. Dr. Cowden, and you actually will be uh, one of 10 people that I've invited to a brainstorming session uh, right. the day after the conference so that we could refine this information and put it in a published format so that we can bring it out to the world that people can have something written and concrete that they can refer to, and especially in conjunction with great tools like chronometer.com and certified nutritionists like yourself which we're in the process of training a whole hundreds of them so they would be available to anyone, but certainly those with serious illness that don't have the ability to fly into the University of Kansas or some other centers that have them. Because there's not many people like you who have this knowledge and are applying it. It's just it's still a very tiny number. I, I don't even – I would say less than 100, maybe less than 50. I mean, do you have yeah. a guess? Absolutely. It, it is a small number of people, and, and especially to find people who have great experience. Diana Nolan is a consulting dietitian we use out of California. It has years and years. I mean, I'm just a few years into this. She's had a career of doing this, and she actually helps train some of our 
our interns we bring in. But you're right. I think the the key to this is the best thing is in my mind is what you're doing is putting all these pieces together, and that's really what's missing. I think there's a lot of value here and a lot of great information and a lot of tremendous amount of research and lots of years of experience, but nobody's kind of put all that together. And I, and I did say that about Dr. Grisco as well. There's only one of her. Uh, we've got to find a way to pass this experience on, and, I, and I, I think what you're doing is the best way to do that. You're putting all these pieces together, so it's, uh, yeah, it's great that, to do that. that that's uh, what I viewed it as is, is this giant 10,000 puzzle piece <laughs> you know, right. that uh, is on this table, and you know, make some sense of it and then put it in a way that is easy to understand and apply and receive the benefits from. So it is a puzzle. And it's and it's not it's a little more complex than the ten thousand puzzle right. piece because these puzzle pieces are changing continuously <laughs> and right. morphing and we learn and there's new pieces and you're throwing out old ones so it's just a it's a constantly evolving story that you know just consumes most of your time to understand. Sure. But yeah. but doesn't doesn't diminish the importance of putting this together, which is why I think no one's really put a comprehensive approach on this out because it's so, there's so many moving parts. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're right. The evolution never stops, and that's that's the key to it. I, it. It's very foundational what you're doing, trying to pull these pieces together, and I think an important time for it as we see medicine changing quickly. Right. All right. Well, thank you for your time and information, and we look forward to seeing you out in Orlando. And anyone else who wants to go to the Conquering Cancer Conference, uh, they're welcome to attend. So Great. Thank opinion. you so much, Dr. Mercola. This is a true, a true honor. All right. Well, thank you, Randy, and look forward to seeing you soon. Great. Thanks.